The Daily 202 Podcast is brought to you by Indeed.com. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed, the number one job site in the world, is here to help. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Daily 202. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, September 21st. In today's news, the U.S. will imminently reach 200,000 fatalities from the coronavirus. The TikTok tussle shows the uneven economic decoupling that's accelerating between us and China. And after a police shooting ignited unrest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, officers say the department's race problems run deep. But first, the big idea. President Trump is preparing to nominate a successor this week to fill the vacancy created by Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death from cancer on Friday night. Democratic leaders, including Joe Biden, accused Republicans of political opportunism and hypocrisy and vowed to fight any effort to rush confirmation of a Trump nominee in the GOP-controlled Senate. With the election 44 days away, Democrats say it would be a grave injustice and a violation of conscience to advance a Trump nominee before the voters render judgment on the president. Two Republican senators, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, said over the weekend that whoever is elected president in November should nominate Ginsburg's replacement. But it would take four Republican senators, joining with all 47 Democrats and independents who caucus with Democrats, to block consideration of a Trump pick. It is not publicly known whether any other Republicans would join Collins and Murkowski, though Trump advisors see Mitt Romney as a possible third defection. The Senate GOP dynamics will come into clearer focus on Tuesday when lawmakers return to Washington and are able to strategize together at their regular weekly lunch. Republican leaders said on Sunday that they're pressing ahead to seize a monumental chance to solidify the court's rightward ideological shift by replacing the liberal lioness with a staunch conservative jurist. Trump said Saturday night that he will nominate a woman, and several people involved in the deliberations tell us that the two leading contenders are Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa, both circuit court judges. Our White House reporters Phil Rucker, Josh Dossie, and Sungmin Kim report that Trump spent all weekend quizzing advisors and allies about the backgrounds of both women and gaming out the political fallout of either nomination. White House counsel Pat Cipollone and White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows are leading the search process, with Cipollone overseeing the legal vetting review, and Meadows focused on the political calculations and state of play in the Senate. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, has spoken with Trump twice about the opening since Friday night. He's told others who have told us that he would support Barrett and that Republican senators know the most about her and would therefore be the most comfortable. McConnell and other allies have argued that Barrett would be able to secure 51 votes needed for confirmation without problems. Influential conservative judicial activist Leonard Leo, who used to run the Federalist Society, is supportive of both finalists and has talked with the White House about them. Lagoa has a much lower profile in conservative circles than Barrett, but her stock has been rising rapidly. She's never had a private meeting with Trump, but one advisor who knows her and Trump predicted their personalities will click because she is, quote, feisty. Lagoa, who's 52, is an appeals court judge on the 11th Circuit. She lives in Miami. She's the daughter of Cuban exiles and would be the second Latina after Sonia Sotomayor on the Supreme Court. She has the enthusiastic backing of a number of Trump's prominent allies in Florida. 
A number of the president's friends have argued that her biography would be compelling nationally and boost the president's chances in all-important Florida, arguably the most critical battleground state for Trump, and one in which high turnout among Cuban-Americans is essential for any Republican victory. The president has been asking about Lagoa and whether there's anything negative in her background after hearing a chorus of positive comments about her and calls from Floridians. White House aides have been calling back to people in Florida to try to learn more about her and her judicial philosophy. One top advisor said late Sunday that 24 hours earlier they would have said Barrett was the favorite, but now they're not so sure. A second Trump advisor says the president, Cipollone, Meadows, and others are trying to get up to speed on Lagoa as quickly as possible because they like the idea of picking her and want to find a way to get to yes. That advisor added that they know Barrett because she's been through the process and she's seen as safer, but Lagoa is more exciting internally. Trump was pleasantly surprised that the crowd at his rally in Fayetteville, North Carolina on Saturday night struck up the chant of fill that seat. But the president's advisors say they're not totally confident this court fight will solely benefit Trump. Some fear could also energize the left, especially people who aren't particularly excited about Biden, noting that Democrats donated more than $100 million online over the weekend. And some advisors are pushing Trump to delay naming a nominee for a few days to let Ginsburg's funeral proceedings conclude. But it's unclear that the president is willing to wait. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start a new week. Number one, 200,000 confirmed deaths from COVID-19 is akin to losing the entire population of Salt Lake City, Utah, or Montgomery, Alabama. A devastation. As our nation passes another dark milestone in this virus's long, deadly march, with no end in sight, the political battles over how to curb its speed, and now the Supreme Court, have stolen much of the nation's attention, making it more difficult to notice just how searing each death's impact can be. It's also the number of fatalities, 200,000, that Trump said at a March 29th news conference would mean he had done a bad job. Yet six months in, Americans are turning away from news about the pandemic. Google searches for virus information have plummeted 90% since March. Americans tell pollsters they have little hope that the danger will recede anytime soon. Cleon and Leon Boyd, identical twins who died six days apart in Vermont, were 64. Eleven people and their family subsequently caught the virus. The family, initially not mask wearers, had been skeptical. Leon's widow, Pam, told my colleague Mark Fisher that when it first came out, they all laughed at it. They thought it was a political thing. Now she's in mourning. Adeline Fagan, 28, was completing the second year of her residency as an OBGYN in Houston, She was a doctor with a lot of potential. Then she tested positive in early July and spent the last two months fighting for her life in an ICU. She lost her battle on Saturday night. Johnny Lee Peoples and his wife Kathy had been married for 50 years. They died from the virus earlier this month, literally minutes apart. They were both holding hands when they passed away. Their son says the message the family would like to convey is that COVID is real. It is not a hoax or a joke. He said his folks took the proper precautions, but tragically still contracted the virus. Meanwhile, the CDC finally acknowledged on Sunday that the coronavirus is spread through aerosols that hover in the air. CDC's website previously said the virus primarily spreads through people who come into close contact, meaning within roughly six feet, and is transmitted through respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or talks. The new guidance notes that the virus can additionally be spread by means of small particles, such as those in aerosols that linger in the air, and that breathing and singing can also lead to transmission. 
The new guidance says these particles can be inhaled into the nose, mouth, airways, and lungs and cause infection, and that this is actually thought to be the main way the virus spreads. The new CDC update also warns that indoor spaces without good ventilation increases the risk of transmission significantly. This change, of course, carries significant implications for reopening schools. Now, scientists in other countries like Japan concluded all of this back in early spring, but the United States and World Health Organization have been slow to catch on. In July, hundreds of scientists urged a letter urging the WHO to acknowledge aerosol transmission. At the time, the organization said it cannot be ruled out. The CDC also said this weekend that it has investigated 1,600 cases of people who flew while at risk of spreading the coronavirus, identifying nearly 11,000 people who potentially were exposed to the contagion on airplanes. But though the agency says some of those travelers subsequently fell ill in the face of incomplete contact tracing and a virus that incubates over several days, it has not been able to confirm cases of transmission on planes. That, of course, does not mean it hasn't happened. And recent scientific studies have documented likely cases of transmission on flights. Number two, President Trump announced on Saturday that he had approved a deal in which Oracle and Walmart will partner with TikTok in a new U.S.-controlled company designed to address his objections to possible Chinese government harvesting of American data. The move comes after the Commerce Department abruptly announced Friday that it would ban TikTok and WeChat, a second Chinese mobile service from U.S. app stores. A federal judge later issued a temporary injunction blocking the ban on WeChat, meaning both platforms remain available here in the U.S. This extraordinary trans-Pacific tussle is hardly an isolated occurrence for the fast-souring U.S.-China relationship. This month alone, the Chinese government unveiled new global data security standards designed to outflank a rival U.S. initiative. Our ambassador to Beijing quit his post, preferring to help Trump's re-election bid. He's the former governor of Iowa. And a complete rupture between the U.S. and China involving impenetrable barriers in technology development or a full-scale financial divorce is still unlikely. It would face howls from the business community here in the U.S. Number three, 11 days before a white police officer ignited protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, by shooting a black man seven times in the back, Portia Bennett heard a commotion outside her house. In the backyard next door, she saw police tackling a black man to the ground. Out of instinct, she pulled out her iPhone. The video she streamed to Facebook that night shows very clearly a Kenosha officer punching the handcuffed man twice in the ribs, ordered to disperse while filming from 15 feet away. Bennett yells, we're not moving until we know he's safe. And an officer replies, do you want to get shot? Instead, they arrested her. Yet another indignity at the hands of an overwhelmingly white police force that has long drawn charges of targeting the city's black and Latino communities. As in other cities rocked by police shootings this summer, simmering tensions between residents and law enforcement fueled the explosion of violence that followed the August 23rd incident that left Jacob Blake, a father of three, paralyzed from the waist down. In dozens of interviews on the ground with our Robert Klemko, Kenosha residents, community activists, former officials, and six current and former Kenosha police officers describe a police culture bereft of diversity, tolerant of excessive force, and determined to cover up for its own. Of more than 200 officers on the force, only eight are black, and a black person has never risen to the ranks of police chief, assistant chief, or police inspector. Current and former officers describe a systemic effort to discourage citizen complaints and protect officers from charges of racial profiling and excessive force. Since her arrest on August 12th for obstructing an officer in disorderly conduct, the 31-year-old Bennett has emerged as a prominent activist against police brutality. 
This is what we deal with, she said. This was the relationship. Nothing has changed. This time they got caught. Finally, to wrap up, the fires still rage out west. The Bobcat Fire has grown to 103,000 acres, making it one of Los Angeles County's largest blazes ever. And as of this morning, it's only 15% contained. Fire officials hope that lower temperatures and calmer winds expected Monday and Tuesday will give them a chance to get the upper hand on this terrible blaze. And Tropical Storm Beta, we're now in the Greek alphabet, is taking aim at the Gulf Coast, specifically in Texas. The National Hurricane Center says a two to four foot storm surge is possible and voluntary evacuation orders have been issued for several parts of Galveston County. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, September 21st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.